when you've lost somebody, you know, life doesn't stop. So graduations go on, birthday parties go on, and, and you're on the verge of tears as you're standing there beaming at the camera. From stylists, this is Nobody Told Me. Stories of life, love, grief, success, and failure, and the lessons learned by the women who survived to tell the tale. I'm your host, Lisa Smazarski, Editor-in-Chief of Stylist. In today's episode, we're joined by Stylist's very own Susan Riley. Susan is a journalist and editor with over 20 years experience working in magazines. For the past decade, she's worked at Stylist, starting in 2009 as deputy editor as part of our launch team. Since then, together, we have worked to grow Stylist from its magazine roots to a multi-platform brand, and Susan was recently appointed the Stylist Group's commercial editorial director. Susan's career in the world of media has undoubtedly been successful, but the start of her journey was marked by a series of personal tragedies which left Susan grieving and trying to cope with the loss of both of her parents whilst trying to take her first steps into adulthood and the competitive world of journalism. This is Susan's story in her own words. My name is Susan Riley. Nobody told me I'd be an adult orphan by 25. One of my first kind of recollections of childhood was was having a bath and my dad was chatting to me while I was in the bath. I think his mother had died and he was explaining to me what death was and um, that she, you know, wasn't going to be here anymore. And it really kind of took me by surprise, that that real stark realisation that the people in our lives that we love are not always going to be there as, as a guarantee. Um, and I remember just absolutely bawling. I think also because my dad, he was slightly older. So he was, you know, about 13, 14 years older than my mum. So when I was born, he was 45. That kind of knowledge was coupled with, with the news that he was telling me about, about death. It was almost like that association. I immediately worked out that the older you get, the, the more chance there is of, of dying. And so that was always in the back of my head, I think. I grew up in a place called Style in uh, Cheshire. Both of my parents worked at the boarding school that my dad was headmaster of, and we lived on site. So uh, it was quite isolating, actually. And because we lived slightly on the edge of town, my, my dad was literally a taxi driver taking me all of my um, friends' houses. My parents were called Bernard and Dillis, which um, it sounds like a comedy duo, to be honest. You know, there was there was 14 years difference be between them. They were a kind of odd pairing, really, but the perfect pairing in, in many ways. My dad liked nothing more than to sit uh, with a drink and a book and be left in peace. He had the best stories, he'd had the most interesting life, you know, he'd been a boxer in the forces, he'd um, served alongside Gurkhas. He was kind of quite magnetic in that way, so he was very, very laid back, very chilled. They used to go dancing together, Bernard and Dillis used to go do dancing together. My mum was very into um, 
doing keep fit in lots of colourful array of leggings. My mum was, was a doer, like an organiser. She was a fastidious list maker. Every summer we used to go away caravanning together to Europe and she would start you know, making lists for that trip, probably in January, I'm not exaggerating. everybody's relationship with their parents changes slightly in their teenage years um I do remember a lot of rows about cleanliness you know <laughs> my room was always a mess when I went to university I went to, I went to Sheffield my dad used to take me he used to bring me back we used to always stop off at the little chef as a bit of a, I don't know, a rite of passage when I got back. He wasn't really meant to have high cholesterol food, so it was a bit of a secret between me and him. I mean, my, my experience of university, it was a, a more of a university of life experience, I guess, than, than any <laughs> solid educational credentials. I mean, I came out with a 2-1 in English literature, um, obviously spent my time there studying as well, but it was mainly just a, a fantastic experience to kind of meet people, go out, you're just living independently for the first time. Really, you're kind of just beginning on that on that adventure. You're on the kind of cusp of, of adulthood, I guess. Fast forwarding that, you know, no, nobody told me that in five years' time I would be an adult orphan. <laughs> I've been out the night before with my housemates and it was really strange because I hadn't been able to get to sleep and I just felt really out of sorts and like something wasn't quite right. We heard the phone ring around 9.30 which obviously is a normal time where everybody else would be up in a student house nobody is up. I answered it Somebody said, you know, is that, is that Susan Riley? Am I speaking to Susan Riley? And I immediately knew something was wrong. And they said, oh, is there someone there with you? Can you please pass the phone over? So I passed the phone over to my friend Maggie. And she had to, you know, listen to what had happened. And, and, and she didn't even have to say. I just said, when she got off the phone, I was like, is it my dad? It's my dad, isn't it? And she was like, yes. I remember calling my brother and he picked up the phone like really normal and breezy and I was like I'm coming home I, I, I'll be there soon and he was like what what are you talking about and what I hadn't realized was that no one had had reached him and then I just remember God just walking around the house aimlessly packing just complete adrenaline going and, and knowing that I, I needed to get home. All I knew at that point was that he had collapsed within the home and that he was gone. And so when I arrived at home, the first words I said were, what happened? You know, what happened? He, he had just, you know, had, had a, a blocking of the arteries and had, um, had, a, had a massive heart attack. And so my mum had found him and, and got some neighbours and, and tried to help and they tried to resuscitate him but um, yeah it was too late. My dad died two weeks before I was due to finish university 
Um, so I was about to sit all of my exams. And I think what the university agreed to do was um, just take the marks that I had um, achieved so far and, you know, work out an aggregate. And then uh, two weeks after he died, yeah, my 21st birthday. And 21st birthdays were like a huge rite of passage for my parents. Like they, they didn't believe in 18th birthdays. They believed 21 was like the gateway to adulthood. So they always made a massive deal of it. And so I was having a dinner with all of my friends. It was a very difficult uh, night to celebrate and smile for cameras. When you've lost somebody, you know, life doesn't stop. So graduations go on, birthday parties go on, and, and, you know, you owe it to everybody around you and yourself to kind of celebrate those milestones still, but it's so bittersweet. Turning up at your graduation, something that you know your parents have been waiting for and like so proud, and one of them is, is missing and, and so, so suddenly missing, you know when people gather in their family units and have photos as they do on something like graduation you're on the verge of tears as you're as you're standing there beaming at the camera you're thinking of your other parent who must just feel so isolated in that moment meeting other parents and 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 your friends and things like that if you lose a parent it's a massive massive void in so many ways but you're, you are not losing your day-to-day -day life, particularly, you know, when you've already left home or you've gone to university. But obviously my mum losing a partner, just as they were retiring and had so many plans, is a completely different thing for her to get her head round. My brother also had just had a baby. So he was really kind of entrenched in new parenthood and. So he had that going on and then I moved back home. I didn't know what I was doing anyway, but I didn't want to, I didn't want my mum to be there on her own. So I lived at home for a year. I kind of realised that I wanted to go into journalism. So I was doing lots of, you know, temping, bar work, um, work experience. I could have easily, easily stayed at home. I had an opportunity to go and study for a postgrad up in um, Preston where I could have easily commuted and, and stayed at home. But she was, you know, that's, that's not going to happen. You go and do what, what you need to do. So I went to City University down in London, and that was a real wrench leaving. But she was adamant <laughs> that I was going to do it. My dad had just retired, my, and my mum my my mom like, likewise had just retired. And they had just come back from a five-month trip to Australia, Indonesia, so they were full of exciting memories. They were almost starting to plan what they wanted to do. She was really lost and um, I don't think she really knew what, what she wanted to do. She started exercise classes and, you know, and actually she was about to go to Cyprus to, to live for a few months and just kind of work things out and work out what she wanted to do. This was a, a couple of years after my dad died. And that was when she got um, her own cancer diagnosis. You know, treatment was available for her, but it was only going to extend and prolong life rather than cure, cure the cancer. 
I remember we went away on holiday together to Portugal to kind of just take in this this news. And I remember her saying to me, I don't want the treatment. And I was so horrified. And I think I said to her, what's the point of me doing anything in my life if there's no one to make proud? <laughs> That's kind of quite a selfish uh, point of view from me. I was kind of saying, look, it's not just about you, it's about us as well. Um, we're going to be left with no parents. And, and she, did, she did have the treatment and they gave her about two years and she died pretty much two years from uh, her prognosis. So they got that uh, fairly accurate. When you are faced with that situation, it, it turns very much into practicalities of what you can do about things. And obviously, we spent a lot more time together. Um, she came on holidays with me and my partner, John, and, you know, was much more integrated into my life because we were, we were all aware that, that this meant one thing. She didn't want to stay in a hospital in the hospital and um, wanted to come home so I brought her home we had um, the care of Macmillan nurses for a couple of weeks at home um, yeah and, and I was there at the end when one parent goes obviously you've got this huge void when both go you, do, you feel extremely unanchored. Everything about your past has gone. We didn't have a massive extended family. You know, I was kind of brought up by just my parents and my nana. And she actually incidentally died between my dad and my mum. So the three people that had brought me up had gone in a space of five years. So you feel very alone. There is so much admin to do in the wake of somebody dying. So you're kind of flung into this uh, paperwork nightmare just when you could really do with your parents to give you a few bits of advice on how to fill out uh, forms, <laughs> ironically. So um, it's more about the practicalities straight afterwards and then grief unfolds in lots of many different ways after the fact. That Christmas, I mean, I think Christmas is probably the worst time to have no family. And when I say no family, obviously I have a brother, but what I mean by family is that intact uh, unit. So I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. So John and I booked a trip to Canada and we were away for the whole Christmas period. So I just didn't have to face all of that. It was pure escapism. It was like, where can I go that I do not have to think about this and I do not have to sit and, you know, cry my eyes out. I, for years, avoided situations that I knew emotionally I couldn't cope with, whether that was um, getting in touch with really close friends of my parents or maybe I wouldn't see my brother as much as, as I would have done because it's it's even more apparent what's missing when you do see the people in your life that you would normally have have spent time with with your parents as well even up until recently i would say that avoidance was a was a kind of uh, a way of me dealing with things 
as you get into the whole wedding and family stage of your life, I think that's when it kind of hits you in a, in a totally different wave of, of grief and having to deal with it. I met John um, at university. He was in the same halls of residence as me. We were together from the age of 18. John proposed after my mum was diagnosed with cancer. So at this point, we've been together seven years. We knew we were going to get married. And I think he proposed with the intention of making sure that the wedding happened while she was still alive. We had uh, booked a place to get married in Cheshire. And I went wedding dress shopping with my mum. And I had some appointments booked in Oxford Street. And we were there for the day. And she just collapsed in the street. Um, she was at a point in her treatment where she probably shouldn't have been out wedding dress shopping in Oxford Street, to be honest. And um, I, I wanted to get her an ambulance and she said, no, just take me home, I just need to sleep. And so I had to flag a cab down and kind of lift my mum into this cab and travel home. And the cabbie just looking at me going, are you all right? And me going, yeah, 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 <laughs> everything's fine. There was a point where it became quite apparent that her treatment that started off so well wasn't going to, you know, carry on being so successful. And we got to a point where we were like, okay, we have to cancel this wedding. This isn't going to happen. So, so we cancelled it. And then after she died, I just didn't know what to do. I didn't want to have a big wedding. I certainly didn't want to go back to the venue that we'd kind of chosen together. So the trip to Canada, which had kind of been my Christmas salvation, John and I just decided it would be perfect to go back there. We'd loved it so much. And we went on holiday for a week and we took 30 of our family and friends with us. And that's how we did it in the end. My brother walked me down the aisle. I did walk down the aisle on the verge of tears because such a massive thing's made of like, you know, the father of the bride and the mother of the bride. And when you've got neither um, either walking you down or at the end of the aisle, it's like, it's, it's just, um, it's glaringly obvious that they're missing. Pregnancy and having children is obviously another thing that, that rears, um, all those feelings of, of loss and you want guidance and you want that relationship. You kind of get stronger waves of grief as you're kind of growing older through these life stages because you see everybody else's parents' involvement in that. And I am so jealous of people who have two sets of grandparents for their kids and they have these big family get-togethers and... Um, you know, it's so apparent. The haves and the have-nots when you've had kids are, are, is really apparent. And I'm really sensitive of the fact that, you know, my child will never know my parents. All she'll have is photographs. As your child starts to develop a character and they say funny things, or in my particular case, my daughter looks identical to me she is my mini me and I am the mini me of my mum so you know people who see photos that knew my mum they'll go oh my god she looks so much like her and she'll give you she'll give you little looks and you'll just catch you'll just catch my mum in, in a glance or a facial expression I'm a lot wiser 
now than I was in my 20s. There are so many conversations I would have with my parents now that I would never dreamed or have been interested in asking them about when I was in my 20s. And I almost have that in the forefront of my mind when I'm raising my daughter because it's it's kind of like, okay, we should talk about everything right from the get-go. I don't want to leave conversations till she's older to talk about, you know, this or that. So I'm kind of, I am very aware of the fragility of time and the fact that in a second, your life can be unrecognizable. So I am very open with her about, you know, death and, um, and various things. She waves at my parents in the sky, blows them kisses, things like that. So actually, she'll never have that big revelation that I had age seven that, that you know, death exists because she's grown up knowing that people are not here. The loss of parents actually becomes even more profound when you go through something quite traumatic in your own life. So um, I divorced my husband, John, last year, or we divorced rather. And I think in times like that, a lot of people, when they have a crisis in their relationship or in their career, you know, they go home, they go home and they let their parents look after them. For me, going through something like a divorce where, you know, a long term partnership of, of 23 years, I would have loved nothing more than to escape home. But you don't have that. When you divorce somebody, you're also losing a member of your family, your tight unit is now disbanded and you haven't even got the the bigger fuller unit that you grew up with either so you kind of feel a little bit like you're an orphan to everybody I felt that I needed to go and have some counseling about it a lot of what we talked about kind of came back to to my parents and the fact that I never really grieved properly uh, you know I had kept people at an arm's length I had avoided situations I and that had had done me well actually but at this point you know losing my husband as well that was no longer going to serve me because I was not able to avoid all of this anymore the best thing you can do when you're experiencing grief is to do nothing and just let it sit and, and wash over you. She was asking me lots of questions as, uh, as good therapists do. And um, she was like, you know, what, what, have you, what have you kept from your, from your parents? So I was telling her about, you know, taking a few things from the house. And then I kind of said, up in the loft, I have a suitcase full of my mum's stuff. I put everything that reminded me of my mum in that suitcase so the, the I don't know the leggings she used to wear around the house to clean the house and you know her handbag and her Chanel lipstick and, and and just just those little personifications of a person I had put in this suitcase and that suitcase is in my loft and I find I find it immensely reassuring to know that it's there but I've never opened it so my therapist was kind of like well, this is kind of like an analogy for you and grief. You know, you keep everything so compact in this like suitcase and you are so frightened of opening it because you don't know whether you can cope 
with um, you know what comes out when you do and um, she's completely right like I am petrified of opening that suitcase knowing of all the the emotions that you're going to feel and I will eventually open it you know I am working up to opening it um, and I'm, I'm still almost working my way up to doing that when you have no parents you are constantly making other people feel uncomfortable because in conversation it's just a natural thing you know oh what does your mum do what does your dad do where do they live and instead of being able to reciprocate and, and answer that conversation I have to stop that dead and go well actually they're no longer with us we all have this awkward um relationship with death and as soon as it kind of comes up in conversation most people want to change the subject because they're really well-meaning and well-intentioned and sometimes that is the right thing to do especially if it's if it's like a raw loss that person might not be able to talk about it but even saying to somebody do you want to talk about this or not um, and then asking some questions really helps to keep those people alive I've learned about how to uh, ask other people going through trauma or tragedy. I've learned how to speak to them about it in a way that I feel that maybe they would appreciate. I mean, you have to look on the bright side, okay? The positives are that I had great parents until I was... 20 and 25 respectively that's a real positive there are loads of people who either don't have great parents or they lost them or didn't know them well before that so the positive of my situation is that I became an adult with all of their nurturing all of their love all of their care so I see that as a massive massive positive the only other positive is that I have experienced it and I don't have it to come because I know a lot of people have it to come and there's nothing that you can say you know I have a few friends that have lost their you know dads in the last few months and all I can do is offer them you know words of comfort and the fact that I'm here for them but I cannot take away the fact that it's going to be a really hard experience and their lives will never ever be the same again My philosophy on death is that it happens <laughs> all too often and basically it can happen when you least expect it and when you're least prepared for it and so you know light the candle drink the nice wine there's no point not doing something or not enjoying something because um, situations change so so quickly. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. I'm your host, Lisa Smazarski, and you've been listening to the story of Susan Riley. I've worked with Susan now for almost 15 years, and we have watched one another grow from fledgling journalists and editors into the women we are today. We've lived through one another's relationships. We've held each other's newborn babies. We challenged and supported each other at work. I've been lucky to know Dillis and Bernard through Susan for most of those years. But I've also seen how that loss has shaped her. We all wear grief and its impact differently. 
In Susan, I sometimes see the smallest flicker in her eye when someone new starts talking about their parents. I've seen the time she shut down the locks on that metaphorical suitcase of emotions when things have got too tough. And I've also seen in the most emotional moments with a newborn baby when she craved only the love and knowledge her mum could give her. Through all of these moments and so many thousands more, she has found her own way to survive. What Susan didn't mention in telling her own story is how remarkably she has succeeded in life. It's not just about coping or surviving. Susan is one of the funniest, most creative people I know. Ideas roll out of her at speed and she sees opportunities others can't spot. She has a quickness of mind in work and in her personality that very few can compete with, but which is such a joy to be around. She is unbelievably loyal to those she loves, ambitious, resilient, and so, so strong. In fact, I think she might be one of the strongest people I know. And she lives life to the full. Her passion for travel, experiences, she gets the most out of life. And perhaps that's a trait born from that first-hand knowledge that you must make the most of today because you don't know what the future has in store. Susan has dealt with personal loss and some of the toughest times and yet lives to not just fight, but to own each day. Despite knowing Susan's story already, hearing her talk so candidly brought me new realisations too. Most significantly, I was left with the ability to not just see, but feel my own privilege to have lived my life so far free of the level of loss she has suffered. It struck me from listening to Susan that there is a deep security and therefore confidence that shapes everything that you do when you have the constant of a good, loving family behind you, whatever shape that takes. The knowledge that someone will always be there for you to give you unconditional support as you take all your first steps through adulthood cannot be underestimated. A parent's love and presence is one of the most valuable gifts you can have. As Susan so openly acknowledged, she knows she was lucky to have experienced any of this at all. But to lose something and someone so special will always be hard. Susan's honesty shows the path with grief is tough. That when we lose someone special, we never forget. In fact, we'll never be the same. But with time, we'll not only smile, but we'll find a new way to learn to live our lives again. To keep in touch with Susan's story further, you can read more of her articles on stylist.co.uk and follow her on Instagram at Suze Riley. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this series of Nobody Told Me and the incredible stories shared by our guests. So please do leave a rating or review in the podcast store. Your feedback will really help. If you have a story and the lessons you learned from it that you want to share in a further episode of Nobody Told Me, or you know someone else whose story we should share, email ntm at stylist.co.uk. And for more inspiring stories from women around the world, visit stylist.co.uk. Thank you for listening to Nobody Told Me.